Well, those of you who were able to join us last evening out for the wild game dinner, uh, I got fed up. I had uh, alligator and uh, some of the tenderest frog legs. We had uh, elk and deer steak. I had there's quail, salmon from Alaska. Oh my goodness, and ribs. Daniel liked the ribs, but it was a wonderful evening. And the only thing that was better than the food was the people there and the, the message that was shared. And boy, was it good. It was a fundraiser for AOK Kids. Sam would love to, you be praying about this. He has a desire to take AOK Kids, those that can go, to see the ark at the ark encounter. Now, some of you have seen that big boat, and uh, you know what a blessing that would be. So pray about that. We'll just pray that the Lord will work that out in his time and his way. But we're honored to have with us this morning, second time he was here, that he's been here, he's, his wife is Heather, he has two kids, Teague and Elliot, and I got to see the picture of them, they're, they're, they're all pretty, uh, uh, he's, he's a man that loves the Lord, and God is using, uh, using this guy, camp ministry, youth, evangel- youth ministry, now evangelism, and he was just recently on uh, Fox and Friends, had an opportunity to share or actually, Martha, Martha McCallum show with the story. I had a had an opportunity to share the gospel with with millions of people. But he's here this morning, and you just pray for him. He's a servant of the Lord. Let's welcome Daniel Ritchie. Welcome him. Thank you, brother. Well, good morning, church. How we doing? Good, man. Hope you're, hope you're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, and ready to go this morning. I know, uh, like, like Pastor said, after, after eating probably 1,000 grams of protein with that um, like carnivore's paradise of, uh, of the sportsman's dinner last night, man, I'm, re- I'm ready to go. If, if I could do push-ups, I, I'm, I might just do them right here on the stage right now, but that's not going to happen. Uh, but... Uh, super thrilled to be with y'all and, and to just have an opportunity to uh, just share a little bit of, of my story and to, to also open God's Word. So if you do have your Bibles or judgment-free zone, Bible apps, uh, you, can, you can open to Romans chapter 12. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. And so if you just want to set that to the side, we'll, we'll get here, there in a, in a few minutes. Uh, but, but I have realized that any, anywhere I go and speak where people don't quite know me, uh, it's always important to get the armless elephant out of, out of the middle of the room. Because, man, people, people, people have questions, like, all the time. Um, you know, a few months before COVID hit, I was in the uh, airport in Denver. I was flying back to Charlotte to, to get back to my wife and kids. And I was flying on Southwest. And so if you ever fly on Southwest Airlines... It's like they herd cattle, but you're people. Um, and, uh, you know, they put you all in one big group, and then they shove you on the plane all at the same time. And so it's like, we're all shuffling together on the plane, and there's this dude smashed up against me, and he's just staring at my sleeve. Just staring, staring, staring. And, and in my heart, like, I'm already... I'm already done with him, like as a human being, because I'm I'm a I'm a grumpy flyer in just in just about every sense of the word. Because like y'all, when y'all get to fly, you know, leg room is nice. You know, you can spread out and you can, you know, kick your kick your feet around and all that stuff. Y'all, if I don't have leg room, I, I don't get to drink the in-flight drink. Uh, I don't get to snack on the in-flight peanuts. If I don't have leg room, I just sit there for 
four hours. And, you know, it's like, everybody gets my armrest, you know? So it's like, <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm in the middle, it's just like, I'm crowded and hungry and grumpy and everybody snored on me. It's just like, I'm done. And so when, when homeboy just starts staring at my sleeve, I'm like, if there were a flight of steps right now, I would push you down them. You know, like I was just, I was really done. And then before I could say anything, he just out of nowhere erupts. And he goes, was it a bear? And I'm like, like was, was, it, was it a bear? Well, hmm. And so I look at him and I'm like, buddy, is this like when we get that bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken? And we go, can, you know what, today for me, it's just, it's just a leg day. Like, I don't, I, don't want, I don't want a chicken thigh, I don't want chicken breast, I just, I just want chicken legs. Did this bear wake up and go, you know what I want today? I really want people arms, like more than, more than anything in the world. I just want two tasty people arms. And so you're telling me I crossed the wrong bear at the wrong time and he didn't, didn't eat the rest of me, he just got the arms? He's like, no, that, that, that didn't happen, did it? And I was like, no, no, you moron, it didn't. And then it's like, we get on the plane and I sit down and it's like the Holy Spirit convicts me, like you called that man a moron. What are you doing, preacher man? And I'm like, ah. And so again, I don't have anything to do on a four hour flight from Denver to Charlotte. And so I'm just like, I'm a bad human, I'm a bad human. And so it's like, we land in Charlotte and I sprint down the terminal to find this guy. And I'm like, sorry, I called you a moron. And he's like, I'm sorry, I thought a bear ate your arms. You know, we had a, we had a good little heart to heart. But you know, then, then I actually like gave him, gave him the scoop, told him just a, a little bit of my story. And, and you know, it's just, it's simply that, man, this is the way I was born. There were no, no bears brought me to this point or sharks or, or anything like that. This is just, man, how God in, in his sovereign plan decided to, uh, put me together, and now in, in that, the I guess the unexpected part was was just that. Like nobody, nobody knew that this was what was coming. Like my mom, my mom had a healthy pregnancy. She had two ultrasounds. She had zero complications, and so the thought was, man, a healthy baby boy is going to be, you know, who comes into the world, um, you know, in just a few days, and so nobody knew that anything was wrong literally until the moment I come into the world and the doctor is holding an armless baby boy there in the delivery room. And then to top everything else off, like not only am am I armless, but I was also lifeless. I wasn't moving, I wasn't breathing. The, The doctor tried to find a pulse and he could not find a pulse. And so he really quickly turns to my dad and he holds me up to dad so dad can see that I don't have arms. And then he just simply asked my dad, do you want us to let him go? And I think, you know, in, 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 the, in the culture that we live in, you know, kids, kids like me are disposable. You know, and, 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 and honestly, they're, they're in, in many segments and in many worldviews. I mean, children in utero, period, are seen as disposable and afterthoughts. And I'm incredibly thankful that in that moment, like with, with all the uncertainty, with, the, with the, the rush of emotions that had to go through my dad's heart in that moment, he just very quickly said, no, that's, that's my son. 
And you do whatever it is you can do to try to bring him back. And so they rush me out and they start to work on me in another room. And my parents are just left there, you know? And, and in this whole chaos of, of like 45 seconds or a minute, my mom doesn't get to see me or touch me. She doesn't know what's wrong. And so my dad has to go over to her and tell her everything that just happened. And, and, I, and I think... Like, like any of us would in, in a moment like that. They cried together and then my dad prayed and it, and it was just a very simple prayer that, that God, if you let our boy live, we'll give him to you. Whatever that looks like, God, whatever that means, we're in. And man, by God's grace, a couple minutes later, a doctor walks in with a little kicking, screaming, armless baby boy and you know, God in his grace had brought me back. And I think for my parents, you know, that, that fear and that worry and that heartache, it subsided. But then what, what starts to happen is, is like in any good hospital, you know, where it, where it starts to spread. Hey, there's, a, there's an armless baby up on the third floor. Go check him out. And so all of these doctors start to stream into our room. They're not my doctor. It's like pediatricians, orthopedic specialists, surgeons. A dude, a dude that was a hand specialist comes into our room and like, my dad's like, good old boy, good old redneck. And he's like, hey, buddy, I think you're barking up the wrong tree there. <laughs> you know, the guy's like, my bad. Have a, have a great day. Uh, you know, and he, he leaves. But I mean, literally in, in this time, and it's probably a three or four hour block, 15 doctors, 20 doctors come into our room and each time they'd come in, they'd look at me and examine me. And every single one of these doctors, but one of them, gave a negative prognosis for my life. And it literally ran the range of, this kid's never going to feed himself. He's never going to write. He's never going to go to normal school. He won't graduate. He won't get a job. He won't move out. One doctor told my parents, you should just give him up for adoption because you don't know what you're in for. Like this is, you know, it's like for, for those of us as, as parents, like the day you have your kids is supposed to be one of the most joyful days of your life. You know, and, and for my parents, it was one of the most dark and scary and, and fear-soaked days of their life. But even in the midst of all of that, like the, the one thing they clung to was that prayer my dad had prayed. You know, just the moments after I, I, I was born, it's to realize that, you know what? God saved me. He physically called me from death to life. And if he can do that, God's got this. And so that, that was how, man, my parents embraced these, these next few years with me because it's not like, you know, they, they weren't prepared for this. You know, my, my parents have both their arms. You know, they didn't know... How do, you, how do you teach a kid to eat with his feet? You know, they, they definitely were at a loss. But I think the cool thing for me was, it's just like God downloaded the, you know, the armless instruction manual uh, into, my, into my little brain. And it was just like from moment one, I just had this natural inclination of, okay, you know, you guys, like God, God made y'all the deluxe models. You know, you got all the bells and the whistles. Like I'm the economy model, man. Like I'm... I'm aerodynamic, uh, I don't get the cool arms or, or fingers or anything like that, but it was just like I knew. And so I just knew that where you guys use hands, I, all right, I use feet. Nobody, nobody had to teach me when you'd set me down on the floor with like blocks and Hot Wheel cars when I was a kid, nobody had to be like, hey man, use your toes. I would just naturally stack them up and 
take a Hot Wheel car like every other little boy would do and smash it into the blocks and then build it again, smash it into the blocks. You know, nobody, nobody had to teach me how to, how to stick a spoon in between my toes and, and wreck a bowl of chocolate chip cookie dough. That was just, it was like it was written on my heart. And, and you know, the best way I can describe it is whatever you do with your hands, I, I just happen to do with my feet. And I, and I love the fact that like all of those things that I was never supposed to do, that like the professional opinions of men said I would never do, God was like, watch this, you know? And I was able to write with my feet, eat with my feet, you know, went to normal school. I grew up, you know, I grew up in a tiny little farming community of 600 people. And so, you know, we, I, w- I went out and made my own fun, you know, fish, hunt, drive four-wheelers and go-karts and my, my first job was on a farm, baling hay, driving tractors, you know, I was just like good old redneck through and through. Um, yeah, uh, all right, you know, it's like, man, I'll never, I'll never forget, like, I was, I was probably 13 years old, and, uh, and my best friend, his family, they were, they were farmers, and we were playing in the barn one day, and, uh, and we, we go in the back corner of the barn, and it's like the biggest stash of fireworks I've ever seen in my life, and we're like, huh. It's awesome. And, and so we grabbed the fireworks and now we're like, you know, we're, we're two redneck kids. And so we shoot off like a few bottle rockets and we're like, mm, it's kind of lame, you know, pew, pew, you know, that's not exciting. And so what we did is, I, again, armless people, you know, I had a pocket knife. And so we, st- we start stabbing all the fireworks and we get all the powder out of every single one of these fireworks and we pull it into a big pile and we find a metal coffee can that was in the corner of the barn. So we scoop all of that uh, into, the, into the metal coffee can. And, uh, and we duct tape the lid shut. And then we found, found a piece of yarn and uh, stuck it in there for a handy dandy little fuse. And uh, we, we dipped that in some, some, uh, some spray paint so it'd be a little bit more flammable. And, uh, and so we, we took said can, stuck it under a stump, lit that fuse and boom, you know? And uh, like, this is the level of redneck I was. And, uh, and y'all like, listen, listen, looking back, you know, in, in all my fatherly wisdom, the last thing that a guy missing two limbs needs to actually be doing is playing with homemade fireworks, you know, like that's really stupid, you know, that's, that's the part of my testimony where it gets real dark and I talk about the time I blew off my right leg, uh, but... But God, God very kindly, he saved, he saved me from myself. I, I, I managed to keep what two limbs I had. Uh, and, and, you know, I was able to graduate high school, went to college on a, on a full ride. And, and there in college, I met a, met a beautiful girl um, and, and we got married. We've been married 14 years. We got two little kiddos, eight-year-old little boy, six-year-old little, or four-year-old little girl. And, uh, and, and so if you're sitting in here, boys, and you're like, nope, nobody's ever going to love me. Um, if, if the bald, armless man can marry a smoking hot, six-foot-tall blonde girl, there's, there's hope. Uh, so so don't, don't, think, don't, don't think you're damaged goods. Uh, there's... There's, there's hope for any of us. Um, but, you know, these are, these are all things that, that it was just like I wasn't supposed to do. And, and you know, I, I look back on, on 36 years of life and I don't go, man, God really, God really held back from me. I, do, I don't feel that at all. You know, my, my greatest struggle has always just been this internal war 
that, that I think it's, it's the snapshot of those words that the doctor spoke over me in the delivery room. Like, do you want us to let him go? And I think in, like my, in my own heart, that's just the snapshot of there, there are people in this world that think I'm not worth it. There, there are people in this world that thought I shouldn't have taken a first breath, much less any, any, anything to come. There, there are people that, that I meet on a regular basis whether I, I got to pop into the grocery store and grab something for my wife, whether I'm out with my kids at McDonald's. You know, there are people today that even as a, as a grown man that are going to stare at me and they're going to point and laugh and giggle. There are people that will say some PG-13 things right to my face in front of my kids, in front of my wife. And that's been, that's been my whole life. And... And for, for probably the first half of it, for the first 15 years of my life in my own heart, it's going, God, why'd you do this to me? You know, you know it, it started to become, in, in my heart, there was this war going on of, I'm gonna define God's love for me on my terms. And it, it's that if God loved me, he would have made me like all y'all. If, if God loved me, I wouldn't have to go through all of this. I would have two arms just like every other person that I know. So, so why is God holding back on me? And so as, as I got into my teens, I, I started to get super depressed and withdrawn and isolated and, and truthfully to the point where I hated everybody. Because any, any person I met was just another person that was gonna judge me. It was gonna look at me like I was damaged goods. And, um, and, and as a 15-year-old kid, I had this guy that I was in science class with in high school, and, and he invited me to a lock-in, which, you know, again, I'm alone and depressed, and so I was like, hey, somebody likes me. Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll go to your youth group lock-in. What he neglected to tell me was that it was a youth group dodgeball lock-in. Now, listen, <laughs> y'all, ar- armless, armless people... Armless people are good at a lot of things, but we are garbage at dodgeball. And, uh, and so it was like, I was, this night I was an armless pinata. You know, they, they just like, they just beat me hoping candy would come out. And like, I kept, I kept popping up and it was like the frustration was building. And, uh, and so for four hours, I just get beaten to death with those stupid red rubber playground balls, you know, and... Um, and probably halfway through the night, we, we take a time out. And of all things, the youth pastor, he starts talking about God's love. And I'm like, bro, I'm not feeling love right now. I'm feeling, I'm feeling bruises and like road rash. You know, I'm, I'm not feeling God's love. But, you know, he wraps up his deal and the night goes on. And it, it, was, it was a little bit after that. But this youth pastor, he comes and finds me. We had never met, and so it's just like small talk. Hey, what's your name? Where are you from? What school you go to? Yada, yada, yada. And as we talk, I think he could sense just my hurt, my frustration, my depression. And out of nowhere, he looks me dead in the eye, and he goes, you don't like your life, do you? I mean, that's a, that's a weighty question to ask a, a 15-year-old boy. And, and I'm like, No. No, I, I, you know, I, I hate my life. I'm, I'm frustrated with God. I don't feel like God loves me or cares about me at all. And so this, this youth pastor takes his time 
to start to not only like unfold, you know, Daniel, God fearfully and wonderfully made you this way. Like he loves you. He, he designed you, like Psalm 139 said, he designed you in your mother's womb and knit you together. Even before you, you were even thought of, like God was not surprised when you came out of your mother's womb with no arms. It's not like he was like, oh, I forgot something. <laughs> Whoops, you know, like God, God didn't do that with you. Like he knew what he was doing and he took his perfect time with you. But even beyond that, like God shows his love for you in this and that like it talks about in Romans chapter five that even when you were still a sinner, completely weak in terms of like your, your own ability to save yourself, like Jesus comes to the earth, he lives the perfect life you could not possibly live he dies the death that you most certainly should die because you're a sinner and a rebel. But even in that death, three days later, God in his power raises Jesus to life so that all who trust in him might be called sons and daughters. And that through the work of Christ, the chains of both sin and death are broken. And to all who trust, he gives hope, he gives purpose, he gives eternal life. That's how much God loves you. And man, that, that day was, was the day that changed my life. Like the, the, the defining voice in my life was no longer like my own voice examining my own worth. It wasn't other people's voices telling me about how broken or how jacked up I was. The most important voice in my life was the voice of God and the promises that he spoke over me as an adopted son. And it completely changed my life. And, and it was in, in the months to come, like God calls me into ministry at age 16. And I'm sitting here going, Lord, I'm, la I'm like a recovering people hater. You know, like, this is, this is not for me, Lord. Like, I don't, I don't know what you're doing here. And, and I really struggled. I really struggled with that calling because I, I like, I, I, I was telling Sam's wife last night, like, I, I love people. I do not like them at, at all, you know? Like, I, I know because of what Christ has done, like, I love them, but I, I would rather be alone on a mountain for 100 years, you know? Like, that's just, that's just how I roll. But for God, almost 20 years ago, to call me to go and take the gospel, to go and take the hope that I had, it changed my life. And that's, that's what the gospel and the grace of God does. That's, that's what, man, the, the, the picture of the book of Romans is that. I mean, it, it almost runs like the roller coaster of my life. You know, the, the first really seven chapters of Romans is this picture of brokenness and woe. You know, Romans chapter one, that man has gone off, they've done their own thing, God has given them over to their passions, to their wants, to their desires, Paul goes on to say in Romans 3 that basically the check that we cash with our life, what our works have earned us, those wages are nothing but death. Like there isn't a single person in here that's good enough to get yourself into heaven. And in Romans 5, like we, we cannot reconcile our situation of being a sinful man in view of a holy God. We were weak to fix our situation. We were enemies of God. And yet God sends his son to die for us. 
And even as Paul, he sits there in Romans chapter seven and he starts laying out this picture that even as a man who is trusted in and rested in Christ, even as a man that God is using to build the New Testament church, he says, God, listen, I know what I should do and I can't do it. I know what you have called me to do and I fail time and time again. And he says at the end of Romans seven, who will save me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through Christ Jesus. I have victory, and he starts off Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Because he has adopted us as sons, because he is working all things together for his good and his glory, because there is nothing that separates us from the love of God. And then it's like everything changes. Romans chapter 9, you see God's sovereign work in bringing people unto himself. You see Romans chapter 10, just the power of the gospel, that to all who confess you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth, you will be saved. And then you see in in Romans chapter 11, there's this picture of God picking Israel as his people, but he also grafts in those of us in this room that are Gentiles. By his grace and by his power, he brings us into the family of God. And that brings us to Romans 11, 36, And it says this, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then Paul starts off Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, but that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and what is acceptable And what is perfect? Let's pray real quick. Father, I just pray in these next few moments as we look at your gospel, at your grace, at your purpose, that, Father, we would be simply transformed by that work and that in that, Father, we would walk in the purpose that you have made us for. Father, help us to have the strength to worship you with everything that we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I think one of the first things for us to pull away from all of this in verse 36, it seems like a a pretty straightforward verse, for from whom and through whom and to whom are all things, to him be the glory. It's the realization that each and every one of us, like Paul says in Acts, in him we move and breathe and we have our being like we are here by the grace of God. And there are some of us in here where our life doesn't feel like super gracious, There there are plenty of us in here where we feel broken, we feel abandoned, we feel jacked up, we feel like God wants nothing to do with me. When in fact, we see that like from the outset, God makes all men, all women in his image to display his glory in all the earth. We see that in this cosmic conversation in Genesis chapter one, we get this glimpse into this Trinitarian conversation And the Trinity amongst themselves, they say, let us make man in our image. And from Psalm 139, that as God fearfully and wonderfully makes us, like he takes his time in making each and every one of us and giving us our skills and talents and abilities so that we can take those skills, talents, and abilities and use those in all the world to show the world how glorious and good and remarkable God is. So when you sit in here this morning and you think, I don't bring anything to the table that God would want, like God knows what you bring to the table because God gave you what you bring to the table. 
Like when you sit here and go, I, don't, I, can't, I can't get up in a pulpit and preach or I can't get up and sing. Well, God didn't give each and every person in this church that gift. Because if we're all preaching, ain't nobody listening, you know? Like if we're, if we're all singing, some of us are gonna look at each other and go, if the Lord gave you that song, you need to give it back. Like you, uh, it's, not your, it's not your thing, bro. You know, like we all... We all have our gifts. We all have our talents. Like God has crafted us in different ways, through different means, in different families, with different backgrounds, all to display God's glory for the people that we're around. You know, like God has designed you as an image bearer for the people that you're around. Like you have a circle of influence I will never have. There are people in your life that I will never take the gospel to. There are people in your life, your pastor will never unfold the gracious goodness of the gospel to them. That's your job. That's your opportunity. And that only comes by your relationships and by your skills and by your job and by where you go to school. And that's regardless of your talent. Like God knows what you bring to the table. He's, he's not going to put you in a place where it's just you cannot possibly do it. Because ultimately, he wants to put us in places that make us uncomfortable so that we're not doing it in our own power, but we're doing it in his. And it's all about trust. Trusting God with our lives that he has designed, that he has called us to. And so don't think for a minute that God doesn't want you because he does. Don't think for a minute that there's people in this room that are too far gone for the grace of God. Like the man who pins the book of Romans is the man who professionally killed and jailed Christians. It's the man who in Romans chapter seven, even as he's following Christ, goes, I sin all the stinking time. I'm the chief of all sinners. But praise be to God, my salvation's upheld by his hand and not mine. And so there's this beautiful picture and beautiful grace that we see in the fact that not only has God made us in his image, but he has restored it by all who trust in Christ as Lord. He's restored that image so we, we can reflect the goodness and the power and the graciousness of God. So then, in view of that, in view of how God has made us, the response, that's why he says in verse one, therefore... Like Paul, he loves to use that word when it's like, Paul builds this big case. Paul lays out the gospel. Paul Paul lays out just the sovereign work of God in the life of believers. And then it's like the response to that in verse one, therefore, offer up yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship. So for us as the church, We can know we are image bearers, but the question is, are we living like it? Do we see every day and every moment and every conversation and every breath as an opportunity to point other people to Jesus? Because we have to realize it can, like the gospel cannot be carried simply on the backs of pastors and missionaries. Because if we do that, the church will fail. But if all of us 
who have tasted and have seen and who know that the Lord is good, if all of us go out into this world and live like the glorious God we trust in, that's when the world gets turned upside down. And it is, it is hard and it is uncomfortable at times. I mean, we, we know the political climate we live in. It's about as uncomfortable as possible to be a Christian right now. But God doesn't call us to comfort. He calls us to obedience. And that's, that's not easy. You know, like I said, when God called me into ministry, I was like, Lord, I don't like people. And so, you know, straight out of the gates, I was like, all right, I'll, 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 I'll be a youth pastor. Like, you know, kids are a little crazy. I'm a little crazy. Like, we, we'll get along great. And so for a decade, I, I worked as a student pastor. And, and, and mostly just because... I saw the impact my student pastor had on me, how God used him to call me from death to life. Like I wanted to have that same impact. And I was happy as a clam in that. I loved my job. I knew like, man, I'm, I'm cut out for this. I'm a, I'm a great student pastor. But then three years ago, God calls me into this like evangelism thing, this, this traveling nomadic life. And Again, I felt super uncomfortable and I just didn't know what to do or how to navigate. And, and so finally, God starts teaching me and growing me. And then it was, gosh, about a year and a half ago, right as I was getting on, on firm footing, I felt like in that place, this, this national conversation starts to happen around abortion here in America and in, and, and in the state of Virginia, Governor Ralph Northam, he starts pushing through a lot of uh, abortion legislation that's going through their state house, their state senate. And, and basically, as he describes it in his own words, he, he saw it as justifiable that even babies delivered that in, in cases of disability and in his words, severe abnormality, that even as they're born, a conversation can ensue between the mother and the doctor as to whether the baby lives or dies. And I'm sitting there going, this, this, this hits too close to home for me. Because that's, that's the conversation that was had about my life. That, that was the conversation that doctors would say, this kid is going to amount to nothing. This kid's going to be helpless. This kid should not take another breath. And they could not have been more wrong. And so, like every millennial does, I shot a video and I put it on social media. And I was just like, you know, like, I mean, it was, it was 90 seconds. And it was just, I didn't name call. I didn't throw Northam under the bus too much, you know, like, but I, I just laid out why I thought it was wrong and biblically what our response ought to be as the church. And in just a matter of hours, like it kind of, it, it gained some social media traction and some people over at Fox News, they reached out to me and they were like, hey, will you just take this video and will you turn it into just like a 900 word essay and we'll post it on our website? And I was like, yeah, cool, can I talk about Jesus? And they were like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> and I was like, all right. And so I, so I wrote it and again, in like 12 hours it, it, uh, of posting, Apple News picked it up and in 24 hours, the, the article had been read 2.7 million times. 
And I'm sitting here going, okay. And it was just a matter of hours after that, a matter of hours after Apple News picked it up, Fox News calls, and they're like, can you be in New York in like six hours? I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Uh, They're like, we want to fly you up to New York and do an interview with you on Martha McCallum. And, you know, again, that was kind of the the one, that was the first moment where in my eyes, like there was was a lot of pause there. Because I'm not not a pundit, I'm I'm not a political guy by any stretch of the imagination, you know, at the time, I'm, I'm like a, I'm an evangelist. I'm a person that, I talk a whole lot about Jesus and that's it. And so I didn't want like politics getting in the way, like people looking at me like in a political lens first, apart from the work of Christ in my life. And so I, in, in my heart, I wanted to say no. Like this is not for me, this is not my, my runway. And so I started to talk to, to the guys that were closest to me, three or four guys that I really respect, guys that have been in ministry for 30, 40 years, and just like, man, what do I do? Talking to my wife. And, and they all were like, I think you should do this. Like, you can, you can frame the conversation in a way that still reflects God and his glory. You know, you can talk about the sanctity of human life and the fact that it is rooted in how God has made us and the value he's assigned to us. Like, you can have a conversation on abortion and talk about the gospel. So I was like, all right, fine. And so right, right before I called them back, I called one more friend, like my dumb friend, of course. And, uh, and I'm like, hey, man, what should I do? And, uh, and he's like, well, listen, you know, it's like, regardless of what you do, just think like, it's like 4 million people will hear you. So if you screw it up, that'll be more people than you've ever spoken to in your life. So they'll all think you're an idiot. (laughs) Thanks. Click, you know, it's like, why do I have to end with the dumb one? I should have, I should have led with him, but I, but I didn't. And and so I decided, all right, we're gonna, we'll do this. You know, I'll go, I'll do this interview. And so, you know, they booked the flight to fly up to New York. I get all pretty, you know, so I look nice for mom and dad so they can take pictures of the TV. And, uh, and so I walk into Fox News headquarters there in New York and they, they whisk me into the green room. And now this whole time I've been, y'all, nervous as I'll get out. Like, I'm not, like, I have a face for radio. I do not have a face, I do not have a face for television. So I'm like, this is going to be, this is going to be rough. And I, you know, I didn't know quite what I was going to say. Because, I mean, they had, like, in advance, even while I was in the airport, they had sent me the six questions they were going to ask. And so I knew straight up, all right, they're going to ask me X, Y, and Z let me try to get, get my answers right in my head. And so I'd been formulating answers the whole time, still nervous, still uncertain. And I walk into the green room and there in the green room there at Fox News is Chris Christie and Doug Collins. And I'm like, oh, I'm the dumbest person on the show. You know, like, crap. You know, I, I suddenly, I, I, started, I started getting even more self-conscious, even more nervous. And it's like both those guys, I mean, both, you know, a senator and a, and a state representative are like very cognizant of the fact that I'm like sweating bullets and I'm stuttering. And, and Doug was super kind. Like he, he gave me like a win one for the Gipper speech. 
then slapped me on the butt and, you know, sent me, sent me up the stairs into the studio. And, uh, and so, you know, we jump in on this four and a half minute conversation that was specifically grounded around this whole pro-life conversation. And it went, the first three questions went perfectly to script. Like I knew what she was asking. I knew what she was going to say. And then the fourth question, Martha pulls a question out of left field that we had not prepped at all. And I had no clue was coming. And she asked me, listen, when you were 15 years old, something happened that changed your life. What was it? Now, like, listen, like, this is totally in the framing of, we're talking about abortion and the pro-life conversation, and I'm going, what did I do when I was 15 that has to do with any of this? And so I'm racking my brain, and I'm like, did she just ask me to share the gospel with four million people? And it was like, you, you, I mean, if you go back and see it, it's like, I pause a beat, and I'm like, ah, uh, what am I going to say? And then I pick right up, and it is, I mean, just laying out the gospel. Wow. How Jesus lived a perfect life and died for us and was raised to life again, and how that's where my hope is. And I think in, in that moment, when I was in over my skis, I wanted nothing to do with this whole situation. I put my yes on the table, and God went, all right, watch this. And, and listen, like y'all, for a lot of us in this room, the yes on the table is going to come in much smaller conversations. You know, it's like last night, we, the, there, were, there was a little bit of snag with, with me getting checked into the hotel here, and so I'm in the lobby for a little bit, and there's two, two guys, like private jet pilots, and they're waiting on their room, and so we start talking, and for me in that moment, my yes on the table was trying to find a way to share the gospel with these two guys that are about to go jet set somewhere else the next day. For you, putting your yes on the table is going to look a whole lot like being the best accountant or the best salesman or the best farmer or the best mom or the best dad that you can possibly be to the glory of God. Like the way you live is not how the rest of the world lives. What you aim for is not what the world aims for. That's why in verse two, Paul says, don't be conformed to this age. Like don't keep score the way the world keeps score. Your goal is for eternal things and not temporal things. Your goal is not stacking up a bunch of money or getting the dope house or boat or or really cool truck. Like it has nothing to do with that. Your ultimate goal is with whatever day, with with whatever breath, with whatever opportunity you have next, it is about him and him alone. And how do you find a way to leverage that moment for his glory? That's what you're called to do. Your worship does not happen here. You sing here. You listen to a sermon here. Your worship happens when you leave this place. Your opportunity to make much of God is when you walk into your school, when you walk into your job, when you walk into your family gathering, when you're with your friends. That's your spiritual service of worship. And we have it totally backwards. Because if I were to ask the people in your life, are you a Christian? Would they define your Christian life by where you go on Sundays or would they define your Christian life by the other six? Because if they only know you go to church and they know you don't trust and rest in Christ, you've gotten it wrong. 
Our very lives are our opportunity to show the world how glorious and good our God is. And some of us in here this morning, you're like me, man. You've doubted God's love and God's plan for your life all the way up until now. And this morning is your opportunity to trust in and rest in Jesus as your everything. And like we saw in Romans, that is simply if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And if here in a minute you wanna know what that looks like, after I pray, I encourage you, come, come grab one of these prayer partners by the hand as we sing. But, but I would dare say, in Northeast Georgia, on a Sunday, a good chunk of us, will all say, we're on Team Jesus. We've, we've made that decision at somewhere, at some point in our life. Well, the question is, what are you, what are you doing about it? Are you using your life as your spiritual worship? Do the guys that you work with know that you love Jesus with your everything? Do the people that your kids play ball with, do they know about your relationship with Christ? Does your family know that? Do you use everything that you have, every conversation, every opportunity, every relationship to point people in some way, shape, or form to who God is and what God has done. Because that's the point. God's plan A to get the gospel into the world is not your pastor, it is you. Because either you go and take the gospel or you're disobedient. The great commission isn't for the pros, the great commission is for all who trust. So for us, some of us this morning, we need to pray carefully, God, how do I do that? How do I do that today? How do I do that tomorrow when I go back to work or go back to school? But whatever it is, our simple prayer should be, God, here I am. Here's my yes. I'll put my yes on the table. You, God, you take care of the rest. But for us, the challenge is to be all in, in all things, with all that we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much just for your gospel. We thank you so much for every man and woman in this room. And God, I just pray we would see the grace and the power of that gospel, that we would trust and rest in it, and that God, we may turn around and make much of it. God, help us to show the world just how amazing you are, how loving you are, how powerful you are. God, just use us to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.